Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm joined by my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shally Meng. Today, we are embarking on part two of our discussion of differential privacy, or DP, and the U.S. Census. We are highlighting content from HDSR's special issue on the U.S. Census. The results of the census are critically important to the country. For one, the census ensures populations have proper representation in government. The results often cause great debate and consternation for both Democrats and Republicans. But political discord is not the only trouble with the census. There are also dangers to collecting such valuable data on Americans. The U.S. Census Bureau is on the cutting edge of science and research to protect this information. To understand how they are guarding your data, we've invited John Abode to speak with us. He is the chief scientist of the U.S. Census Bureau and has implemented differential privacy. We also have Dana Boyd, a partner researcher at Microsoft Research and a distinguished visiting professor at Georgetown. Shally, I'll let you take it away with the first question. John, in your article, you wrote a really very nicely about why the Bureau decided to do differential privacy. Protecting data privacy has always been a central consideration for the Census Bureau throughout its history, and many methods were developed and implemented. So could you, John, provide a brief summary of this history and then comment on the significance of adopting differential privacy now with respect to that rich history? First of all, I think the most important thing to stress is that protecting the confidentiality of the respondent is the primary strategy for getting voluntary participation in the census. And the recognition that it's a strategy for getting voluntary participation in the census goes way back. The usual story that we tell is that the census taker posted the results on a signpost in the village square so that they could be cross-checked by the residents. But that ended with the 1850 census when the marshals stopped doing that and just published tabular summaries, the the most basic of all confidentiality protections, aggregation. And then the statutes gradually incorporated these uh, confidentiality protections. That first happened in 1879, Census Act, and then uh, it was embodied in the statute that currently governs the census, which is Title 13 of the U.S. Code, also known as the Census Act, which was passed in 1954, and the confidentiality provisions are largely unchanged from the way they were uh, passed in 1954. Now, we knew that these issues were still salient for the 2020 census. Research that was done as early as 2017 identified confidentiality and privacy concerns as one of the principal barriers to voluntary participation in the 2020 census. So we knew that we had to encourage voluntary participation by reassuring the residents of the United States that their responses would be confidential. At the same time, the world was changing dramatically underneath our feet. And the kinds of challenges to protecting large-scale tabular summaries of data became extremely more difficult than it had been even for the 2010 census. Given that background, we had to strengthen the confidentiality protections on the 2020 census. So the question then becomes how, and the problem is that the ones that were used historically 
don't stand up to the kinds of attacks that we demonstrated were both feasible and highly salient for the kinds of data that we published from the census. So we went to the strongest confidentiality protections that are currently available, which is uh, the differential privacy framework. The Bureau's decision to adopt differential privacy was met with some mixed reactions, especially from different statisticians and different people involved. Dana, I know you've written about this. So what do you see the issues being with this specific choice of how to protect citizens through differential privacy? What are the problems with it? What caused this mixed reaction? To understand why it's so controversial, the answer is many different reasons it's controversial. But the reason why has to do with what people imagine the census data to be. And I always like to remind people that the word statistics, it breaks down to state knowledge, what the state knows. I prefer the original term, which is political arithmetic, because it reminds us that what the state knows and how the state conducts data has a lot to do with politics. Well, there was a deviation that happened with statistics that, you know, shaped the future of the census, where the realization was that the state could try to know something, but its knowledge would always be incomplete for many of the reasons John talked about. Not even if you're trying to encourage voluntary response, not everybody participates. And so what happened in the 20th century is that the Census Bureau put its mandate to say, how can we best know the population? How can we build the best way of understanding information about the population. And so the Census Bureau throughout the 20th century was innovating a variety of different methods, some of which were more controversial than others. For example, sampling. Sampling is used and and eligible to be used in everything but one particular data product, apportionment. But sampling is something that the Census Bureau experimented with. It's how it evaluates its own quality. There's also, of course, the long history of trying to fill in missing data, right? Because the Census Bureau doesn't want a situation where it has missing data, but at the end of the day, it still has missing data. And so it's always trying to fill these different things out. The confidentiality procedures grew up alongside all of this. And the confidentiality procedures that were first visible to people were effectively suppression. You just can't have that data, right? Which was, you know, one, it was a practical thing for, you know, for example, the 19th century, it was expensive to produce that data. But for most of the 20th century, it was also practical until it became a matter of choice and decision. Then the Census Bureau was under tremendous pressure to give more and more detailed data. So starting in 1990, it made a trade-off. It made a decision that it would make certain that people could get these small area geography data, but in exchange, it would start to add noise. Well, nobody really paid attention to the fact that there was noise added. Nobody understood it. These kinds of methods are not part of the public discourse. And so... The controversy around differential privacy brought forward a bunch of different things simultaneously. It brought forward a realization that data are made, not found. People imagine that it's just like a nice little headcount. And all of a sudden you had to reckon with, a much broader world had to reckon with, the fact that those data aren't necessarily just a head count of everybody. I wish our audience could see you counting heads. I think that's... (laughs) Duck, 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 duck. Um, I love that. I love that. (laughs) You get to this point where you have to deal with these data and see them in a new light. They're not just a head count. And noise has been being injected to them since 1990. That was 
radical. People didn't realize it. Because part of the other thing about differential privacy, it didn't just bring forward a new technique. It brought forward a commitment to transparency. The Census Bureau wasn't totally opaque about its previous ways, but they were in a tiny little footnote buried over there, and you didn't necessarily look. Just like many people don't look at margins of error in the sample survey. It's just you help maintain this illusion that these data are perfect. And, you know, for a lot of the people, obviously in the special issue, their question is just like, what is the data quality? And that itself is one set of questions to ask. Another is, does this fit in with my mental model of how the Census Bureau's data should be produced? The questions that are not as much in this special issue are, oh, can I play games or not play games with these data, which is a big challenge that, you know, helps shape the legitimacy of what the census does. It sounds like they are not necessarily specific to differential privacy. It's, it's almost like this brought up lots of awareness. So my question to John is now you, I know you have received a lot of comments, possibly criticism, all those things. So what are those things that the Census Bureau are, are addressing now? The first thing I want to do is acknowledge that there were communication difficulties, but our engagements with the stakeholders, and I mean both the internal and external stakeholders, have greatly improved the Census Bureau's understanding of how the data are actually used and contributed to a better quality final product. Specifically to your question, most of what we have gotten in our exchanges are critiques that basically apply to any confidentiality protection system. They are not specific to differential privacy. And the easiest way to point that out is to talk about something that you hear a lot in the discussion of official statistics, which is the consistency. Are all the tabular summaries mutually consistent with each other? In many official statistical systems, that is a virtually sacrosanct uh, requirement. But the mirror image of that consistency is uncertainty, right? If I give you two calculations that are about the same thing, then you expect them to be, if not identical, at least similar. But if necessarily I have to maintain some uncertainty about whether it was five or 15, because knowing too many exact fives or too many exact 15s undoes the confidentiality protection, then necessarily some of the statistics have to be inconsistent because that inconsistency is just a synonym for uncertainty and uncertainty is at the heart of every disclosure avoidance system, including suppression, because suppression doesn't work by itself it works in combination with other suppressions so that you can't recover the originally suppressed data. And one of the things you keep secret is the rule you used for that original suppression. In swapping, the things you keep secret are how many you swapped and what the criteria were for swapping. As a consequence, discussions of the actual implementations of confidentiality protections in Census Bureau products have been extremely limited in the statistical literature and in the computer science literature, because since they weren't transparent, the computer scientists didn't try to analyze them either. We can have these discussions publicly now. They apply to any confidentiality protection system, not just to differential privacy. I think a 
as we talk about sort of the concerns and, you know, it's, it's always easy to, to criticize, right? Like, you know, any new thing that somebody implements, it's really easy to criticize it and come up with everything that's wrong with it. But the fact remains that we do have to protect privacy in some capacity. So Dana, it makes me wonder that, you know, what, what's better? You know, sure, there might be some issues or some questions or some controversy surrounding differential privacy, but what would be better? So, you know, I definitely start from the starting point that confidentiality is non-negotiable. We want the best data we can manage to collect, to triangulate. We want people to participate in, say, administrative records so that information can be used. We don't want fear resulting in the idea that people don't want to be counted and recognized. It is the most vulnerable members of our society that I worry about, right? And I think a lot about, you know, laws that we're having right now about whether or not, for example, it's acceptable for somebody to be, you know, recognized as transgender within the state. These are really controversial issues, and we don't want communities not counted. Because the other dual goal, and it's a very important goal, is how do you know? How do you know the country? How do you um, build policies, you know, through evidence that makes sense? How do you, you know, allocate representation? How do you combat discrimination? All of these are use cases that are really important around census data. And that's where, you know, John's point about uncertainty is really important. What is the level of precision that is necessary to get there? And these data were never as precise as they are in perception, right? I mean, and the Census Bureau in many ways comes out and makes these grandiose down to a single digit numbers about the population. And they just sit there going, that's a little awkward. Um, so I think part of it is, is like, how do you actually work with uncertainty? And the thing about differential privacy is it's saying, let's work with uncertainty. Let's actually harness uncertainty to manage these dual mandates. Let's communicate that uncertainty. And that's really important. For me, this is not like the final end goal. This is why we see advances in science. We see advances in statistics. The procedures that were implemented for the 2020 census, I hope they're not the procedures that are implemented for the 2060 census. That says that we've not actually developed or innovated in any way around how to think about these issues. The point is, is how do you harness what you know best to manage these dual commitments in every decade? And how do you ensure that a federal government agency has the room and flexibility to keep innovating, to keep pushing the advance of the science? And this is the funny thing about you know, the Census Bureau in its formation and its history. The census office was constantly advancing science throughout the whole 19th century. That's why we created a permanent census bureau, is to help keep advancing that science. So one of the things that we've often lost is that innovation is a commitment of this government agency, and it's an important commitment. Because at the end of the day, the Census Bureau, more than anybody, knows the importance of confidentiality. You are not going to see these same commitments made from, say, private sector actors, which is why I think a lot of private sector actors are looking at the Census Bureau being like, wow, you, yeah, it might have been built inside an industrial research lab as a first thing, but wow, you've pushed the edge. And that's also what needs to be acknowledged and complimented, right? They are advancing science. Is it perfect? No, but it has to keep innovating in order to make certain that these commitments can keep up. Privacy and confidentiality are a moral commitment. And if we want to have a democratic nation, we actually have to make a moral commitment to those who live in this country that we will make certain that the state is not an abuser. And that is the radical commitment of a U.S. census, because the U.S. census was predicated on an inversion of the commitment of a census. Like a census was 
conducted by censors to conscript and oppress and you know, often kill. We inverted that in a democratic nation. We inverted that and said that a census is to empower. It is to empower people to be recognized and to actually self-govern. We have to hold on to that moral commitment through this process too. You are absolutely correct because uh, Census Bureau itself has been a part of the innovation force, right, through the years. And I always think, and, and I say this thing quite openly, that I think, you know, Census Bureau has been given almost impossible task, mission impossible, right? On one hand, the constitution said you have to count everyone accurately. Then the title 13 said you need to protect the uh, privacy. And we know that these two things, to some extent, will have constrained with, with each other. I think John mentioned uh, early on uh, in his answer about the issue of communication, right? Communication, obviously, is, is very, you know, very important. And Dana, you do extremely well communicating to the broad audience. I just listened to your talk. I thought it was wonderful. But I wanted just, uh, I hope I don't put you on the spot that, you know, if you were in charge of uh, John's communication team, you know, what would you have done differently? Anything you would have done to make you know, John's life a little bit easier? Oh, how I, I wish I could make his life easier. I mean, I think, you know, the hard part about this whole thing is that there was a lot of learning and learning at multiple levels. Right? Because part of it is, I would say, the thing that surprised me and that I didn't realize early on was just what I think of as a, the total epistemic disconnect. And Jay Shree and I talk a lot about this right. in, our, in our article, which is that you communication is extremely hard when you don't share a sensibility or a way of seeing what these data are. So you know, if I can yeah. go back in time, I'd want to work to resolve a lot of that epistemic disconnect even before we're getting differential privacy as part of the conversation. When we start with differential privacy, we're triggering an epistemic disconnect. I see. Great point. That's one dream. No, if I go backwards. My other dream, which I think is hard to understand for those on the outside, what the Census Bureau is allowed to say in its formal capacity is not the same as what the bureaucrats, including John, want to say. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing I had to learn the hard way is watching really well thought out communication turn into governmentees, right? And, you know, lawyers got involved and politicians got involved. And I really really misunderstood the degree to which that process was going to aid and abet the miscommunication and the uncertainty in the information. Because then it goes back to your other sort of, you know, goal of like, what would I have done differently? A lot of this is about networks, right? It's about being able to have, you know, interpersonal interactions and to sit and hash things out and really work things through in different ways. Well, even going into this, the conversations were happening in totally disconnected communities and networks, right? And that should have ideally been bridged before the implementation. Um, that only got made worse by a pandemic where none of us could have any reasonable conversation that wasn't mediated through, you know, a video and a set of Twitter othering, right? So it was like this whole distancing, you know, so I go back to, you know, helping John, I think more than anything, I'd be like, well, this is not going to be easy. This is going to be a mess. And I think that the hardest thing in watching John go through this is that is to watch the, the degree to which he became the lightning rod for a much bigger set of decisions, a much broader set of thoughtfulness. Um, and, you know, yes, his communication style, his way of speaking is very technical, as you know, and that works in certain contexts. 
But the broader challenge is not something that can just be solved by, you know, quote unquote, fixing John. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the hardest part here is just that what you know with hindsight is very different than what you knew in different moments. And the thing that I got to see firsthand is just how hard John and others tried. That's not necessarily appreciated. It's not necessarily um, respected as being on the same language as other people, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Um, and I think that that's the other thing to always look back and people are like, well, the government should communicate better about this new disclosure. I'm like, give me an example. And what I repeatedly find is that people don't have an example. And so the thing that I am horrified by is like, why is the answer to that just being really quiet about what you do, which is the norm of most agencies. And so that's the other thing I have to just commend John and the team for is trying to make it public, trying to make it a public reckoning, even though I think it was painful for everyone along the way. And I don't think we're done. Well, I guess the question you raised about communication, you know, because we tend to, myself included, most data scientists tends to try to explain things in more technical terms. It is a general problem. And one thing we do at Harvard Data Science Review is really trying to communicate as, as well as possible. And uh, speaking of which, there is a most technical, but important distinction uh, that needs to be made, then that's my question for John. And in your article uh, for HDSR, you made it very clear that the defense of privacy is not protect these kind of absolute privacy that people think what's important to them, but rather, rather this relative sense. Now, that itself, the distinction, I mean, uh, as uh, statisticians, you know, we can kind of understand it. See the difference. See the mathematical formula. I mean, I understood it through the mathematical formula. See, it's a it's a difference, right? And but that may or may not be understood, you know, uh, you know broadly. So the question I have for you is: Is it really true that 2020 census had better protection than 2010? In what sense? And what a, what would be the evidence you can provide? Tell them yes. After we come through all those things, this actually is better. In what sense? Well, thank you, Shali. I I see you saved the easy questions for Dana. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was me, not Shelley. My fault. I, 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 this is an extremely challenging thing to do. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that we stress now that uh, from learning that, that we didn't stress in the beginning is the dual mandate to publish data and to protect confidentiality can be restated in scientific terms as promote good statistical learning or inference mm -hmm. from the data products and inhibit inferences that rely on a particular person's data. And so we have very good statistics showing that the protection of the 2020 census is orders of magnitude better at ensuring that inferences that require a particular person's data mm -hmm. are much much harder to make than they were with the 2010 data products. So I count that on the plus side. In the preserving scientific inference, that is a tricky one to quantify because the, the natural tendency of our internal and external stakeholders has been to take the demonstration data products that we provided and run them through the pre-existing crank that they had and compare what came out to what came out when they ran the original 2010 publications through the same crank. But they don't 
turn the crank for all the steps. As Dana pointed out, they do an oranges to apples comparison. If you want to turn the crank, you have to include all of the optimization, the decision-making that led you to decide based on the original 2010 publications that this was the useful answer that they provided. So if you don't redo that decision-making, repeat your inferential process on the demonstration data, you don't make a fair comparison with the original product. I, and I, I have some examples, one of which gets dangerously close to me making a partisan statement that it's not intended that way. So this is a, a critique of our demonstration data products as they have been used by all manner of uh, external stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And you can see it if you look at some of the criticisms of our small area estimates as they aggregate into voting districts. I see. They are just as useful as the original 2010 data in producing those voting districts, but they haven't been subjected to the political, and I do mean partisan political, by play in the use of redistricting data to create election districts. So they haven't been re-optimized. And you can't make an assessment of whether the scientific inference, whether these voting districts protect equal protection, so they're approximately the same size, and non-discriminatory, they satisfy the Voting Rights Act. Without doing that, similar statements could be made about population projection comparisons that haven't been re-optimized. So the stakeholders have been extremely helpful, especially the critical external ones, in identifying the dimensions of the data that don't meet their use cases. The Census Bureau has worked extremely hard to address the concerns that were expressed that way by maintaining the basic principle that I laid out at the very beginning of this answer. You don't want inferences that depend on a specific person's data to be very accurate. You want inferences that are proper scientific inferences that depend on the aggregate data in a well-defined sense in a useful way. And small area data are going to be the biggest challenge for doing that because small area data by necessity only involve small numbers of people. In the published 2020 census, the average block that was at risk to have population had about, that means it had some sort of living quarter in it, had about 50 people in it. Thank you, John. Dana, you have any uh, reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, John's answering this from the technical place. I think Part of what is also true about the different mechanisms is how the mechanisms actually work in practice, right? Like a swapping mechanism homogenizes, right? Because it's trying to take an outlier and make an outlier disappear by making somebody who is not an outlier in that environment. Homogenization really has significant impact when you're trying to do anti-discrimination work. Mm -hmm. It gives you the sense that you've got coherence when you don't necessarily have coherence. And that is concerning. Meanwhile, what we know about the mechanisms that are used in a disclosure system that uses DP is that it's not going to do this maximal homogenation, right? In some ways, it will actually increase heterogeneity as part of its process. But it means that you're making different calculations, to John's point, about how you do this. And I think this is what I struggle with a lot, which is, you know, where are the illusions 
in our various systems that have shaped what we want technically, our illusions about how these, you know, these data work and how they look on the ground. I think it's notable to me that since 2000, the census directors have repeatedly said, do not use block level data. They do not have the level of detail you think they have. And everyone said, nah, that's nice, going to do it anyhow. And people were not just using it to aggregate up, they were using it assuming that there was no homogenization processes that are in those. And so I think part of what's also at stake, you know, to this, to this broader issue is like, how are these different mechanisms affecting both the data work people are doing and the illusions that they have been using for often, you know, both partisan political reasons and just everyday analytic reasons. I think we have to sort of wrap this up in a way that we always love to wrap it up, which is with our magic wand question. So for both of you, is there a magic wand? Like what would be the magic wand to make this work, to protect people's privacy and confidentiality and have enough information for all the use cases the census needs? Is there a magic wand? Is there something that would work? There is no magic wand. And there is a theorem demonstrating the same. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> it's fundamentally two different things going on. There are plenty of good technological solutions that improve on the way we implement a differential privacy for the 2020 census. Uh, you have to relax some constraints. And once you relax those constraints, you can get a product that on many accuracy dimensions would be of higher quality. However, there's also a social choice involved. At the moment, the social choice has been delegated to the Census Bureau's career senior executive staff. Decide on your risk tolerance for confidentiality protection. And that decision process is being exposed to the public for the first time. So in some sense, a magic wand would be certainly not to have detailed guidance here, but to understand in terms of a consensus that can be reasonably applied by human beings, that the risk tolerance should be in this range. And the, the way we actually did it was to not give anything, any more privacy loss budget than well-articulated leading use cases required to go forward and to pay special attention to the data released for very small geographies or for highly unique subsets of the general population. That's net, DP does that automatically, so we didn't have to do anything special. We just had to be careful in the way we allocated our privacy loss budget. I think I'd build on that saying, you know, I think of magic wands in two different buckets that are relevant here. One is what are the bucket of technical things that I would do to improve the process? For which I'd say there's many, right? Like both the data coming in and how the data come out. There's all sorts of technical work that could be done, tools and techniques that we know right now. And what is the barrier to that magic wandness is that even me saying the names of those techniques spark all sorts of controversies in different directions. Because people imagine that they just struggle with what that means and what that looks like. So there's this whole challenge of like, how do you think about marrying the techniques that you can use and people's understanding and the challenges there? 
The second for me are the magic wands then that are about that disconnect, right? That disconnect that is um, making it so that technical work and technical moves aren't necessarily easy to even explore or research, let alone to implement. And that's where, you know, the magic wand that I want there is, you know, one, how do we start having a more sophisticated conversation about uncertainty? Within the data science community, how do we start actually building better ways of measuring and evaluating total uncertainty within a system? Not just uncertainty within a disclosure system, but I'm saying uncertainty within a whole system. How do we integrate and build tools that introduce that uncertainty? Like the reason why is even in sample surveys, people don't use the margins of error is because they don't know how to do it in Excel and all of the third-party software is just like, we'll just erase that, right? <laughs> So there's these components, which is like, how do we, how do we make certain that we've got the tooling, we've got the sensibility, the understanding. So that for me is, you know, there's that technical component. And then there's the conceptual one, which is how do we start having a conversation about what it is that we mean by fair and equitable data? Because a huge chunk of it for me is that to get to fair and equitable data, we have to move past our traditional ways of approaching the, the collection and the production of these data. Because I want to see fair and equitable data. And the mechanisms that have gotten us here over decades aren't getting us actually the data that we can use meaningfully on the ground to do that. So that way, for me, you know, there's all the technical work that could achieve that, but there's also the broader social understanding from all the different stakeholders. So a magic wand is everybody in the room hashing it out until they can actually understand one another. Um, and that's why it's a magical wand. Thank you <laughs> so much. Very fair. Uh, I guess you're saying the real magic wand is in, in some sense education. We really need to have us the whole society know how to conduct all these, you know, conversations. And learning, both learning. ways. Yes, both ways, yes. These are particularly hard these days, but, you know, that's that's what's particularly important. Now, speaker conversation, this one is not just going to be a long one. I think this one, as long as there are humanity, this one will be go on, uh, because we humans are very good at creating problems for ourselves. Uh, putting aside all the political consideration, just think about our own private behaviors, talking about privacy, we all like to collect more information, just even for creating these AI products, whatever you call them, to help our life. But they're, you know, don't you collect data on me, collect data on somebody else, right? And, and I always use a phrase, is the only problem is, you know, other people's other people are us. So there's just no way you can get around it. You know, even the term data privacy, in some sense, is an oxymoron term. Data are born to review and privacy means to conceal. And you can see these two things are always, always there. So I'm extremely grateful for, to both of you. I know how busy both of you are and also uh, for your wonderful article for HDSR. And I will uh, tell the general audience here definitely to check out the special issues on HDSR, which has a dozens of articles, a lot more topics covered. But this is just the beginning of extremely long, sometimes a painful conversation for the whole society. As John just said, who should decide? Let's use a very technical term, that privacy loss budget. And it shouldn't be John, it shouldn't be any individual, it shouldn't be any field, it shouldn't be computer scientists, it shouldn't be statisticians, it should be really collectively, but who's going to do that? And how do we have a very uh, calm, rational conversation on that? And this is just the very beginning. So thank you to both of you again for this wonderful and very thought-provoking conversation. Thank you, Gal, so much. Thank you. Thank you.